Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How's the segment going to work this year? All right, so last year we took a head-to-toe tour of the human body, but this was in the healthy state. So this year we're going to be discussing what happens when things go wrong. So some of the diseases that we'll be discussing will be fixed on certain health awareness weeks or days. So, for example, in Feb, we've got Asperger's and ovarian cancer awareness weeks and days. Uh, But there is some flexibility. So if the listeners have a particular disease or disorder they would like us to discuss, please feel free to let us know. You can let us know on Twitter. Uh, You can also let the station know. As well, and we'll do our best to try and cover these diseases. Um, for consistency's sake, we thought we would structure each episode the same way and take the following approach. We'll introduce the disease through a case study, which is often what we do when we're teaching. Um, we'll talk about some stats on the disease, so who's affected and why they're affected. We'll cover the basic overview of the disease being the causes and signs and symptoms. We'll look at treatment options and management, and then we'll look at the future and see what some research may offer for that disease. So most of these diseases you're going to talk about, there is some hope with treatment? Absolutely. Because that's the positive part of the show, that we don't want to just be all doom and gloom about this condition. No, that's exactly right. Okay, so how do we want to kick off? What's the first disease that you want to share with us? Well, I think we're going to go through congenital heart disease. So the 14th of Feb is Congenital Heart uh, Disease Awareness Day, and it coincides with uh, Heart Kids charity CEO, uh, Mr. Rob Lutter. He's basically stated that he wants Australians to show their heart in February by helping raise $650,000 to provide one-on-one support to families that are impacted by congenital heart disease. So in particular, parents of newborns undergoing surgery and treatment. So Heart Kids hopes that the initiative will extend their ability to assist up to 3,000 babies that will be expected to be born with this condition this year. So congenital heart disease today. Excellent cause. For those of us who are not familiar, can you explain what is congenital heart disease? All right, Ash. So um, a congenital heart defect is essentially a generic term that is a range of conditions that affects, affects the normal structure of the heart. So this could be holes in the chambers, blood vessel sizes diminished or reduced, or the valves between the chambers are kind of affected. Now, Ash, I know you weren't with us all of last year, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Yeah. What is the purpose of the heart? Why do we have a heart? To circulate blood through the body. Great. And so where does this blood generally get pumped to? Through the arteries to the outer extremities of the body. I thought it would go everywhere. Yeah, it does, but it kind of has two main um, system loops, which is one goes out to the whole body and one goes to the lungs. So if we kind of look at the, the heart just generally, it's kind of got two upper chambers and two lower chambers. The upper chambers are called the atria and they collect the blood and the two lower chambers are the ventricles and they pump the blood. So the, the atria, they pick up blood from the veins, okay, and so there's two sides, there's a right and a left. The right side picks up the the blood 
um, from the body, and the left side, the left atria, picks it up from the lungs. Now, the, the ventricles, same kind of thing. The right side pumps the blood to the lungs, and the, the left side pumps it out to the body. Now, the ventricles, which is the pumping part, they have a wall between them to, to separate it off. Uh, and so do the atria. And so this can be the problem with some um, defects, can be problems with the walls. And also between the atria and the ventricles, we have valves, and these can be all, also problematic. So I guess the take-home point would be the right side of the heart has the low oxygen, so it needs to send it on to the lungs. And so sometimes they make that colour blue, or it's depicted as blue colour. And the left side, it has the oxygen, so then it pumps it out to the body. And so when we look at defects, this is essentially heart defects that are a problem with these structures. It could be the wall, it could be the blood vessel size, and it could be the valves. These structural problems, are they genetic or do they appear because of the environmental conditions of the womb that the baby is developing in? So it's a good question. So straight off the bat, probably half of them we just don't know what causes it. And then probably about 17 or 18% is a genetic basis. So it could be either genes or chromosomes that is the cause. About 20% is multifactorial, which is a combination of genes and environment. And now with environment, so this could be within the mother, about 5 to 7% of congenital defects is caused by environment. Now what these could be, if the mother's infected with a particular virus... So a good one or a good example is rubella or German measles and that's going to induce significant heart defects and that's why we have the vaccine against it. There's certain chemicals which we call teratogens and some examples of alcohol, um, lithium which can be sometimes used with bipolar, SSRI inhibitors which is kind of like Prozac so that's used for antidepressant or interestingly, a type of vitamin, like vitamin A. So too much vitamin A can have a detriment to the heart. Where does that occur naturally? Well, if you had it in your food excessively, so if you were to, if the mother was to ingest like huge amounts of vitamin A through, let's say, vitamins, or if they were going to... Offal? Offal, yeah. So like liver or, or kidneys would have high amounts of vitamin A. I wonder if that's why there was a natural taboo against eating offal in many parts of the world because it is it can be bad for you. Yeah. I mean, for, for some reason in embryology, it has a lot of signaling effects. So it tells the cells to change orientation or morphology. So it, not only in the heart, but it can be in your fingers and so forth. So very strong importance in the development of the embryo. And you've talked about how it can affect the walls in the heart. What kind of... When do people get diagnosed, typically, with a congenital heart disease? So usually uh, within the first week of birth, about half of those with congenital heart diseases will or defects will be identified, and then the majority of those remaining will be identified at around about five years of age. Are there symptoms that the doctors are looking for? So as the, if they're missed, so they may be asymptomatic early on in life, so not presenting with any particular symptoms, but maybe on exertion, for example, maybe during exercise, uh, they may develop some sort of wheezing, coughing, uh, even getting blue. Uh, can be a sign, which is called cyanosis, and this has to do with the lack of oxygen being delivered to the right tissues. Can smoking, you were talking about that having an impact on people, is that something, if, if someone changes their heart 
it damages the heart, smoking or alcohol. Can that change be passed on to the next generation through, you know, some kind of epigenetic effect? No. What usually happens is if you're going to be passed, if there is some familial genetic effect that's going to be passed from one generation to the next, all those changes, which will be in the DNA, must be be changed within the gonads of that individual. So the sex cells. So it's going to be the testes or the ovaries. That's where the genetic changes need to occur in order for them to be passed on to the next generation. So that, that's why if somebody gets lung cancer from smoking cigarettes, for example, the offspring is not more susceptible to getting lung cancer from smoking. I have a, someone that I know who got diagnosed in their late early 20s with a congenital heart disease and was told, you know, you, you probably won't make it till 30. So it can be a really devastating condition and, and sometimes diagnosed quite late in life by mm. people who didn't think there was anything wrong with them. Mm. It's so variable. I mean, the the number of congenital heart defects that um, can occur are quite extensive. Uh, and even one type, for example, so Matt was talking about the septums, which is basically the walls that oh. separate out the different chambers of the heart. You can have a, a, a hole basically in one of those walls, but it's variable depending on its size, also its location in that wall as well. And all these types of things actually affect what direction the blood flow is going, how much blood goes from one side to the other, how much much oxygenated blood is mixing with deoxygenated blood. And then this can have upstream and downstream effects. Do we see differences in rates of congenital heart disease around the world? It's a good question. I'm not too sure about that. I know that um, the numbers are relatively high in uh, developed countries and that if someone has a child with a congenital heart defect, that the likelihood of having another child with a congenital heart defect is variable depending on the type of defect, but usually the, uh, the um, likelihood has slightly increased. What about the differences between men and women? Do you know the stats there, Matty? No, not really. That's a, that's a okay. good question. Question without notice. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, it's okay. Sometimes. Great question. But we'll come back to that. We're going to, like you said, go through this quite in a structured way. So what's the disease? We talked about what it is and what happens in the body. How does the diagnosis process work and the treatment? So as Mike said, probably the, the, the first diagnosis for the, for the fetus or for the um, developing embryo will be the 20 weeks. So that's um, in the second trimester. And that's a fairly lengthy ultrasound, which takes about an hour. And that looks at the morphology of the heart. Yeah, I remember when we were going through. So my daughter's 18 months now. And I remember going through the 20-week scan. It takes, yeah, it takes about an hour and it's quite extensive and they measure the, the length and width of all these different structures and they know the, the right ratio. So if something's one length and one width, then they know that, okay, this sits within the normal bounds. And if something's out even by a little bit, then they'll double check and triple check. And so this is that anomaly scan that Matt's talking about. This is where a lot of these defects will actually be picked up. It's, it's quite a sensitive, even though it's just using uh, ultrasound, it's quite a sensitive way to be able to pick up these defects. And then going on, presumably if birth continues well, then the paediatrician or who have, who have you will, will do certain physical exams. So auscultate or listen to the chest. And if they hear certain murmurs, which is kind of like the way that blood is rushing through the chambers or through the valves, that could be an indication of a problem. If the ba baby fails to thrive or get bigger, that could be an indication. Like Mike said, if the baby's going blue, particularly if in bouts of crying, that could be because when you when the baby cries, 
it puts a greater pressure on the lung system or the pulmonary system and it can, if there is a patent um, hole, it can shunt backwards, which causes the, the blood to mix, like Mike said, which causes the baby to come blue. Um, but other things could be um, chest X-ray, which they probably wouldn't do routinely on a baby unless they really needed to, or uh, an echocardiogram, which is kind of an, like another ultrasound, but for specifically for the heart. So all these things could lead it towards a diagnosis. But um, the serious ones, they would get picked up fairly early because of all the signs that will go with it. Some other ones that are a bit more benign, a bit more subtle, like atrial defects, are generally found later in adults when they're put under certain circumstances. Like, let's say, they go scuba diving. That that change in pressure underwater can change the, the shunting of blood and that can be the first time that they realise they've got a, an issue. So those later onset ones typically are not life-threatening? Well, not necessarily. So this is where sometimes you'll hear quite um, elite athletes who are doing a particular mm. activity and then they'll have a, a fatal arrhythmia or they might have this defect that they never knew they had and that could um, result in a serious complication or even death. And so that wasn't known until this one incident occurred. Yeah. What's what's the state of the science at the moment when it comes to diagnosis and treatment? Are we making advances in how we're picking this condition up? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you look at the fate of babies born with congenital heart defects, it's dramatically changed over the last four to five decades. So heart defects that were unconditional death sentences 60 years ago uh, now have a survival rate of up to 96%. So leaps and bounds just in the past couple of decades. Because of our ability to pick up or treat the condition? Both. Both yeah. So if you have a look, the first surgical intervention for a, a heart defect was in 1938. And basically... Basically, what they did was they clamped together a hole which was present that was connecting two blood vessels together. And this, these blood vessels were, were shunting blood, which means it's basically a communication network between oxygenated and deoxygenated blood, which was mixing it. And this little hole that's present, this communication, is actually supposed to be there from birth. It actually helps us bypass the lungs because you don't need to use the lungs when you're in utero because it's just filled with liquid. So it helps us bypass, but when you're born, that should close up. And sometimes it doesn't close up. And so this is called a patent ductus arteriosus is the term. And so in 1938, they were able to clamp it for the first time. And since then, so many more different interventions have have become available. And and one of the big interventions was when we discovered all the use of the heart-lung machine. So Mm. we could bypass the heart and the lungs in surgery and operate on the heart without blood rushing through it. And so you were able to... um, block up holes and septal defects and so forth under a surgical, um, yeah. Is that quite an old machine that people put under if they were bitten by a snake and they needed to be to be treated? What, what's the origin of the heart-lung machine? I think it was to do bypass surgery. I could be yeah. wrong, but I okay. think it was to do bypass surgery. And that not only in terms of, um, say, congenital defects, but also when, say, you're needing to do bypass surgery for um, like a heart attack, because in the problem with the heart attack is you've got blocked blood vessels and you need to be able to unblock them and you need to be able to operate on the heart and it's really hard to operate on the heart when it's beating. So they, you need to stop it. And so obviously if you stop the heart, the, the person isn't going to last very long. So you can move the, the, um, the blood around the body, but you can also oxygenate it while the heart stopped. You're listening to ABC Radio. If you have any questions for Dr. Mike or Dr. Matt, give me a call, 1300 222 612. 
1300 222612 or you can send a text through to 0467 922612. So we've been moving through what the disease is, the diagnosis, the treatment. Are there any areas that we haven't covered yet that you want to explain? Yeah, maybe a couple of statistics and then we can look at the future directions, what the future may hold. So statistically, um, what we'll find is that in Australia, about eight babies per day are born with a congenital heart defect. Uh, and it can be, like we've stated before, a lifelong condition. And it seems to affect around about 3,000, sorry, 6,000 new parents in Australia. Uh, it's actually one of the leading causes of death and hospitalizations for infants. So around about one in 100 births end up having a, some sort of heart defect. And this is getting slightly out of your area of the science of it, but what kind of impact does it have when you're a parent with a child with congenital heart disease? What are the medical costs that you have to endure for the next several years? Well, this is where Heart Kids come into play, um, which I briefly mentioned at the beginning. So Heart Kids is a charity organisation which are currently trying to raise funds to provide support for parents because obviously, one... Uh, a lot of these parents, this is the first time they've had a child with a heart defect and so will be facing significant medical costs. Uh, when you're, you've got a newborn child undergoing some sort of surgical intervention, it's going to be uh, a significant impact on your mental well-being. Emotional, so, economic. All yeah. of these things. And so Heart Kids is raising funds to try and help these parents. Does that mean there's not enough state support for these kind of conditions, this treatment? Look, you could potentially say there's not enough state support for a lot of things. (laughs) It's hard to know. I mean, like from the top of my head, I would imagine that it would get all managed publicly. So with the surgery and all all that sort of things, I would imagine the children hospital would take care of a lot of that. But in in terms of ongoing, I'm not sure if that would require private insurance or it's a lot of of out-of-cost, out-of-pocket cost. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, So, Dr... Dr. Mike, you were talking about the key statistics about babies. Is there anything else that really stands out to you? Well, I think uh, if we start talking about some future directions, um, currently we've got the diagnostic tools, which are great, ultrasounds, we've got uh, cardiac catheterization, we've got MRIs, all of these equipment techniques allow us to be able to identify and diagnose early, which is wonderful. And then we've got the interventions, which can help us fix some of these issues. But what the future is holding is hopefully something that allows us, one, to identify as early as possible. So this may be some sort of genetic screening that we do. Uh, but then trying think, to... F- and you also said there's a neurological scan too, right? Yeah, so because many different types of... Um, heart defects don't necessarily sit by themselves. They've also got sort of extra cardiac effects. You find that some of these heart defects can alter the way the blood flows and can sometimes alter the blood flow to the brain, which means you can actually have neurological effects because of the altered blood flow. And so one paper that I read stated that potentially one early way to diagnose is to have a look at neurological changes through diagnostics uh, as a means, as a proxy, basically, for some sort of heart defect occurring. So do a lot of patients suffering from congenital heart disease also have minor or worse brain damage because of the blood flow issues? Well, what you'll find is around about 30% of congenital heart defects will also have some sort of non-cardiac organ affected. So, And this could be basically multiple organs within the body. Sometimes these go in, in, in a cluster, so these can sometimes be called syndromes. And so a classic one is Down syndrome. Now, the problem, one of the things that happen with Down syndrome is there's a, a cluster of cells called neurocrest cells which come out of the neural tube that closes up very early on in the, in the in the baby and 
part of those will go, well, they go in a lot of parts of the body, but one group go into the face and help to develop the facial skeleton. But there's also a group that go down into the heart to separate and put septums in. And so uh, typically with people with Downs, they will have um, changes in their facial uh, skeleton and their facial structure, but they also have septal defects. So this is an example that sometimes where you get clustering of multiple congenital issues they can sometimes develop a syndrome. So like Mike said, not only could affect the heart, but it could also affect other organs. And Mike, you talked about early genetic interventions. Mm. Does that mean you get diagnosed with being having a propensity to congenital heart disease and you're advised not to, you know, breed with someone who has a similar condition or where does this lead? So probably more so in the diagnosis when it comes to just uh, general screening. So it may not necessarily be you have a heart condition. Uh, let's test to see if, you know, your child may have an increased likelihood of a heart condition, but maybe more so of a test just generally to see if, because at the moment with genetics is difficult. So if you have a change in some gene or genes that results in some sort of physical change, that's actually the least likely scenario when it comes to the way genes influence the way uh, diseases come about. It's usually this multifactorial one gene and another gene are affected and then you've got environmental interactions coming in which are affecting the way those genes are expressed. So it's all quite complex but what we can do is screen certain changes within certain genes which increase give a, uh, increase our likelihood of knowing whether this individual may have um, an increased likelihood of developing X, Y or Z heart defect. So that's probably one of the uh, directions that we should be going in or are going in. Another one would be looking at ways to um, intervene when it comes to identify. Once we've identified that there's an issue, what we can do to remedy that issue. Would that be CRISPR? You could CRISPR if it's genetic. Yeah. Um, but if the and we'll be talking about CRISPR in another episode, <laughs> we'll focus a whole episode on CRISPR because it's amazing. Um, but when it comes to fixing the issue, uh, because a lot of these surgical interventions are happening in newborns, the intervention needs to be able to grow with the child, right? And yes. so if it's something that's non-biological, it's going to have a fixed size. And this is quite difficult. So we want to use biological tissue. We want to use the tissue of the individual themselves. So either take stem cells or mature cells from that individual, seed them into some sort of biological scaffold, and then transplant that back into the individual to fix the issue. The problem at the moment with it, and this is probably where the future directions will go to try and fix this, is that when you take the cells out, you need to grow them in the lab, you need to get enough numbers of these cells in the lab, then you need to seed them onto the scaffold, then you need to transplant it. All this takes time and probably time we can't afford when somebody's got a congenital heart defect, which probably needs to be fixed ASAP. Can we pre-make the structures to put into people? So we can pre-make the scaffolds, but the cells we have to get from the individuals. If we get them from other people, that's fine, but what may happen is that individual may reject those cells mm -hmm. because everyone has these little flags on their cells that say, I belong to this person, and we recognise those flags or not recognise those So flags. it's more complex than blood types, this cell matching. Yeah, it's very similar to blood types because bl blood cells are just cells. cells yeah. uh, so it's simply, again, just a flag and our immune system goes, hey, they don't belong to us. You're foreign. I need to get rid of you. I don't know where the science is on gene 
editing, but is there a way to intervene into the genetic code of the individual, of the embryo itself as it's growing to fix a congenital heart issue? So that would be part of CRISPR that, that Matt was talking about. So this is basically using molecular scissors to try and find where the error is placed within the gene and you cut it out and you fix it by placing in the correct letters that should be there and you can do this in cells that basically can multiply and so fix all the cells that have the errors in them so that when they make new copies, they don't make new copies with the errors present. Is that hard for you as scientists to get approval for this kind of intervention into the code of life? It's, well, it's not necessarily difficult when you do these experiments in vitro, meaning in a dish. So this is quite common and even quite common to do it in vivo with which is in body of of an animal model uh it is then difficult to go from an animal model to a human model mm. uh extremely difficult but but this is but people are doing it and this is where the future is going what uh, will be the influence of robotics and mechanical parts to fix this issue well i think the they're limited because of the fact that you're doing this in a newborn and whatever the intervention needs to be, let's just say it's a a new valve or maybe it's some sort of mesh piece that's been placed in, may need to grow and develop with the child. And so if it doesn't grow and develop with the child, it may be something that requires replacement in the future. A good good example of a mechanical um, replacement was a valve, I think the aortic valve or the, yeah, I think it's the aortic valve, and they used to use a a basket and ball. And so basically what it would do is when the heart would beat, the ball would go up. And when it would fill up, the ball would go back down. And it was quite a successful um, valve, but many patients would complain because at night when they go to sleep, they could actually hear it tap in. (laughs) And so that was one side effect of it. It's very dark. (laughs) Medicine can get very dark. Do you have a a last word to leave us with on congenital heart disease? Yes. So there is urgent need to increase access to quality information and education um, and support to help ensure that people with congenital heart diseases and their families, regardless of where they live, actually have access to this information and resources. So listeners, to show your heart this February, can you please, please donate to heartkids.org.au forward slash show your heart. So that's heartkids.org.au forward slash show your heart. So that is a charity organization. Or you can share uh, something about heart disease on social media, tagging at heartkidsaustralia or follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Dr. Matt Barton and Dr. Mike Todorovic from Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Ash. Ash.